in here, huh? Man, I have a tank top on underneath this. I might start preaching to my tank top in a little bit. Things could really get weird because I'm not good looking in a tank top. I mean, I know that for sure. All skinny and scraggly and whatnot. Um, so I want to talk about darkness for a second. And I had this idea. I think it's a good idea, but at the same time, I was going to turn out all the lights and make this room complete darkness. That was like my, I was like, yeah, we're going to make the whole room dark. And I was like, all right, Eric, everybody gets it. So we'll skip that step just because I think it's a little like, I would have done that in youth group. I would have turned off all the lights and made all the kids like freak out. And um, if you want to pretend it's darkness, you can close your eyes. Um, so you can, you can go that route. But I do want to, I do want to go back here. When uh, two summers ago, my family, we went to Pennsylvania and I wish that this, maybe I should turn off all the lights and you could see this a little bit better because this isn't a very, it's hard to see. We went to a place called Indian Echo Caverns. Now, is there any like sort of cave cavern place out here in California that I'm missing out on? Where's that at? Oh, in the Sequoias. Oh, yeah, yeah. Oh, that's right. I think you've told me that story, right? Yeah. We could kick someone out of Crystal Cave that would have been our family. Yeah. So we did this. In Pennsylvania, I think there's two. There's Crystal Caverns and then there's Indian Echo Caverns. There's two of them. And it's just like, you know, these deep caves that you go in. They do a little tour. They take your money and you go buy the, the stamped pennies or whatever, you, whatever they hustle for you in the, in the gift shop. But they take you on this little, I don't know, 30 minutes, 45-minute tour, right? So we all went. I looked for photos. We didn't really have any great photos. We had like... You had like two photos of us standing outside and I didn't have any photos. So these are just good old, good old Google image. Here's another one. And again, there's like some, you know, we can go in the science realm, stalactites, stalagmites, right? And then, Jillian, you might, I could give you the seat up here and you can just take, take over for a little bit. <laughs> and again, just this is all from Indian, uh, Indian Echo. Where were we, Indian Echo? Yeah. yeah, Indian Echo. There was Indian Echo. And so this is all from this, this kind of cavern. They take you all the way back, and then what do they do, Joanne? They turn, they turn off the lights, right? And it is total darkness. And I remember something that stood out to me when we were there is the guy would say, like, imagine, because, you know, they have all the uplighting and everything looks cool, and they have, you know, imagine exploring this cave in pretty much darkness. Like, you might take your little kerosene lantern back there, but, you know, if you tied a rope to your foot or you tied a rope to your waist or something like that so you could kind of find... But if something happened, like, it is pitch black of pitch black. And when they turn those lights off, it is disorientingly black, dark, right? Um, so I started thinking about this, and obviously we're, we're thinking about darkness. There is a term for fear of darkness, extreme fear. Is that you? I'm claustrophobic, like, I'm lost. I'm claustrophobic? That's how I feel. Yes, yes. For those who are extremely uh, fearful of the dark, nyctophobia, that's your word of the day. Nyctophobia is extreme fear of the dark. Uh, Nolan would have been in the cavern, would have been nyctophobia, screaming his head off, right? Um, there was, I kind of was like doing a couple, trying to just, a couple studies. There was one study that talked about kind of pre-pandemic, 11% of adults struggled with nyctophobia which they said was more common than the fear of heights, which was kind of interesting. Um, there was a survey in 2012 
40% of respondents said they were afraid to walk around the house with the lights off. I'm not going to ask for anybody to raise their hand if that's them, but you might be resonating at some moment. In fact, 10% said they wouldn't even get out of bed to use a bathroom in the middle of the night just because of that kind of fear of the dark. So one of the things that the, the darkness brings upon us, right, obviously it impairs our vision. This is from Alicia Clark. It impairs our vision. Um, and then you, this is un, inherently uncomfortable. We're not afraid as much of the dark as we're afraid of what, um, is in the dark that we can't see, right? So w- what happens is with, with the darkness, it's not, and if you, if you close your eyes, it's not necessarily that it's the darkness that's disorienting, that, that's afraid. It's, it's that you become vulnerable, right? You don't know what's around. You don't know what's happening around you. You don't know if somebody's sneaking up behind you or if somebody's coming, you know what I mean? So it's that vulnerability aspect that, really kind of makes the darkness what people are afraid of. Now, there were some studies that wanted to link uh, being afraid of the dark, like back to the cavemen. And, you know, it was it's some sort of evolutionary biological response because the cavemen, as um, they were in the darkness, they would be more vulnerable to predators, right? And it's some sort of evolutionary issue. Uh, I don't know if that kind of, I, I don't know about that. But anyway, darkness, again, for, for those who have been, who have experienced it, who have some sort of fear of it, um, who have children who are afraid of the dark or who have gone through that phase, it's just something that happens in life. It's something that all comes around us. Now, let's make a quick shift from darkness to light. And what I do want to do is I want to brainstorm this a little bit with you. So take a minute. I'm going to erase the board. Take a minute and think about... Think about... Instances, instances in the Bible of, of light, of how that's used. So take a minute and just think about that. I'm going to brainstorm this just a bit. And you can't cheat and say, you know, Jesus saying, I am the light of the world. That's already taken, so no cheating. All right. Somebody give me one. I was just thinking, uh, you know, when the angels appear, it's like this bright. Oh, I didn't think about that one. Yeah. Even, you know, like, what? They're so disoriented. Like, what is this? What's going on? Lanterns. Which one? The, the lanterns. But they were. The, bri- the, the bridesmaids? I didn't think about that one either. What else? Light in the Bible. I was thinking the the glow of when Moses sees Jesus' back or God's back mm. and all the glow from his face. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Men's, you got to come strong with one. I was just going to say the burning of the bush. 
kind of cheating because we used it. <laughs> but that's a good, yeah. I'm going to let you have a pass because it's your birthday, birthday boy. That's good. I mean, that is, these are all, by the way, these are, none of these are on my list that I have. Yeah, yeah. Jesus becomes, um, and his clothes shown dazzling white, whiter than anyone in the world could bleach them. Yeah. Dietra, anyone over there? What about the creation? Yeah, there's, there's one that's on my list. You're just lighting up the room with your smile. That's all she's doing over there. Okay, here's, here's some other that I, I had. Um, and I, I don't think I need to write these down. Um, this was the first one I had. And then the Israelites are wandering through the wilderness and they are led by a cloud by day and what by night? Pillow of fire, right? Um, there's that great Psalm. Thy word is a, a lamp into my feet and a light into my path, right? Um, there is, and again, Psalms, so much imagery of light in Psalms, the prophecies, there's, I'm going to use one a little bit later, Matthew 5, 16, in which Jesus says, who is the light of the world? You are, yeah, you are the light of the world. Let your light shine before men so that they may see your good deeds. In Luke 2, Jesus, uh, I'm sorry, in Luke 2, there's a prophet named Simeon, and, or not a prophet, a priest named Simeon, and this guy named Simeon prophesies about Jesus that he is going to be the light of the world. In John 1, 4, the kind of whole opening stanza of John, right? The, um, talks about the incarnation, right? The incarnation is the light. And then there's this great passage at the very end. And it's some sense of the Bible opens with light, right? Let there be light. And then in Revelation, I think it's 22, 4 through 5, that it talks about God sitting on the throne and he will be their light, right? And there will be no need, right? Because God will be the light that shines forever, right? So in some senses, in Genesis 1-3, it opens with light and the Bible closes with light. Again, as we think about our passages today, three times in, in the Gospel of John, Jesus makes this claim to be the light of the world, right? Where he's saying, I am the light of the world. It's a little different in 12, for sure, in 8, for sure, in 9. In, in, in 12, it's a little different. But here's, here's I guess, my, my point for each one of these. I want to briefly look at each one of these. Is that in John 8, Jesus is the fulfillment of the light theme throughout all of the scriptures, Right? A major theme in the scriptures is just the differentiation, is just the separation of light and darkness, right? And Jesus, in some senses, stands up in front of everybody and is claiming that all of the light exists within him, right? And he does that in a very specific way, in a very Jewish way that they would understand. The second one that we'll talk about this morning, if we have time, is there's a man born blind and Jesus restores his sight. And then he claims, I am the light of the world. And then there's some talk about um, how the miracle will end up leading to worship, right? 
And then lastly, in John 12, 44 through 46, in the midst of some more kind of pushback and unbelief from the Jewish believers, Jesus, again, claims that he is this light that has come into the world. And this really bold statement, and this isn't Jesus's words, this is me paraphrasing, but that wherever Jesus is not, total blindness, total darkness exists, right? And it's a really bold confrontational and shocking statement that Jesus ends up making. So if you got a Bible, let's go to John chapter 8. John, you got those green pumas on today, huh? Yeah. Uh-huh. And you got your wolf shirt on? Yeah. Uh-huh. Strong, Johnny. John chapter 8, 12 through 20. Uh, Let me read this real real briefly. I'll have to set up a little context on this too afterwards, but let's just read it. When Jesus spoke again to the people, he said, right there, I am the light of the world, right? Whoever follows me will never walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. Almost like when he says, I am the bread of life. Now he's comparing himself being the light of life. Um, The Pharisees challenged him. Here you are appearing as your own witness. Your testimony is not valid. Jesus answered, even if my testimony, even if I testify on my own behalf, my testimony is valid for I know where I come from and where I am going. But you have no idea where I come from or where I am going. You judge by human standards. I pass judgment on no one. But if I do judge, my decisions are true. Because I am not alone. I stand with the Father who sent me. In your own law, it is written that the testimony of two witnesses is true. I am the one who testifies for myself. My other witness is the Father who sent me. Then they asked him, where is your father? Jesus says, you don't know me or my father. If you knew me, you would know my father also. He spoke these words while teaching in the temple courts near the place where the offerings were put. Yet no one seized him because his time had not yet come. So Jesus is doing a couple things here. And if you kind of expand out in John chapter 8, he's preaching at what's called the Feast of Tabernacles, right? This is one of the big Jewish feasts that they would celebrate. The Feast of Tabernacles was a feast to remember Um, God's presence in the wilderness. They wander for 40 years. As they're wandering in the wilderness, they set up this movable kind of temple. Remember this, right? So in here would be the Ark of the Covenant. It's where they would keep the sacred items. It's where the priest would go in and make the offerings. They'd have the washing basin, the incense. They'd have it all marked off, right? This, I think, is like just kind of a a replica set up somewhere. This isn't the actual one, by the way. Um, you guys are too focused right now to laugh at my joke. So anyway, this is a feast. So they travel throughout the, the 40 years and they have this tent that's set up. And then once they settle into the promised land, right, and they build the temple, they then have this, this feast, this celebration. Sorry, this was like the best image I could find. It's kind of in the background of the temple. But they would set up these little booths, these little tents, these little kind of almost, you know, kind of like mini tabernacles, right? And they'd gather around Jerusalem for the week And they would celebrate and sing and praise and sacrifice. And they would do all these things 
in a remembrance, so this kind of looks like they just kind of picked up some lattice from Home Depot and winged this thing together, which is really what they would have done. They would have just kind of taken whatever and they just kind of would have wung it together and, you know, and again, a celebrate, I want to say party, it was a party, it was a big celebration, right? And so they would do this um, for a whole week, right? They would celebrate this Feast of Tabernacles. So during this Feast of Tabernacles, right, Jesus is at the temple and he's, he's kind of part of this celebration. He's part of this teaching. He's part of this whole thing. And obviously, again, teaching sermons, they'd commentate, they'd read the Torah, they'd study the Torah. And um, in, in the midst of this, as Jesus is standing on the last day, right? So the, the whole festival kind of leads up on the last day. Jesus stands up, right? And he begins saying these words that he is the light of the world. Now, this was from the Jewish New New Testament commentary. And I just want to, I'm going to quote this and and use this a little bit. So they talk, they really explain this for me in in a great way to see this. And I hope that I can use my artistic skills to show it to you guys as well, too. Okay, so the, the, the Jewish New Testament commentary was, was, was citing some, some kind of some Hebrew sources, like the, the Hebrew um, kind of commentary on how this was supposed to happen. And they talked about these four golden menorahs, right? With four golden bowls at the top of each and four ladders, each leading to a bowl. So I, I don't know, what are we talking here? So we got one, two, three, four, right? So here's your bowl, here's your bowl, here's your bowl, here's your bowl. And then you have, what do we got? Four, um, you got four golden bowls on the top of each, right? This is not very good, but you guys will get the idea. Okay. And then you have these, these ladders that were leading up to them, right? I'm going to get to this too, but I'll just say it right now. Some people, there were some sources that were citing these ladders were about 75 feet high. So these things are not just like, hey, we just pulled out a step ladder. This was, here's, here's, here's an image. I, I think this kind of shows, again, so you'd have these bowls, right? You'd have, you'd have even four more bowls on top, right? And then it would say, Four strong young Kohim, which, which that word means like not a priest, but kind of like an assistant to a priest, someone in the Levite, in the priestly line, would climb up with pitchers, each holding nine liters of oil. So think about a two liter thing of soda, and now you're carrying almost five of them. And they are pouring that oil into the bowls, right? So they're going to pour that oil into these into these bowls, all these bowls, and they're going to fill up all these bowls with the oil. Isan, we missed your birthday last week, but we have a lot of birthdays to celebrate. Dustin's birthday was on Friday. Your birthday was last Sunday, right? (laughs) Happy birthday. After church, we'll have you come up and we'll sing happy birthday to you. (laughs) 
Okay, so are you guys, what's that? So we're tracking with this so far, right? So we have these four bowls. We have the four bowls on top, right? The priests are climbing up and down. They have all this oil. Now, this part's great. From the worn out drawers and girdles of these priestly guys, they made wicks with them and they lit the menorahs. Does anybody else read in between the lines here? Yeah. What are you reading between the lines? Not quite. <laughs> like, does God, is this like God having a sense of humor here of just like, hey, go get some used chonies, um, cut them on up, and that's going to be your wick? I don't know, right? That's what I was reading, and I'm like, really, God, used underwear? Okay, if that's, if that's, I mean, that's maybe a good way to upcycle or recycle. I mean, is God kind of being ahead of the, a, a grid? But from the worn out drawers and girdles of the Kohen, these people, they would make the wicks, and then they would light the menorahs, Right? Now, it carries on. Um, and there was not a courtyard in Jerusalem that was not lit up by the light of, of these festivities. So again, kind of going back to this picture, right? You can see, I don't know how accurate this picture is, but you can see how tall they are, right? So they're, they're shining up all this oil that they would use. They light these things up, right? And here they are. And like all of Jerusalem, and again, Jerusalem's not a, a great big city, but it would perhaps be around the size of, of Eastgate Park, maybe, say. And so we have these big 75-foot things, and we're lighting off these big fires, right? And you, you have that the, this commentary says that there wasn't a, a courtyard in Jerusalem that couldn't see these lights, that wasn't lit up by these lights. And just for, I don't know, sometimes I just get too juvenile, and we'll just do that one real quick, and then we'll just keep moving on because... It just brought me back to how terrible that... Brian, was that for you? <laughs> was, that, was that important in your... I mean, that, was, that describes my junior high experience. Yeah. <laughs> That's what I thought when I was like... I was like, man, that was That's like... what I spent most of my time doing. <laughs> <laughs> so the, the, final, the final part of this, this giant kind of piece from the Jewish New Testament commentary, pious men... And women, we would say too, but we pious men of good deeds would dance around the menorahs with lit torches in their hands, singing songs and praises while the Levites played harps, lyres, cymbals, trumpets, and innumerable other musical instruments, right? So you have this as, as this is all happening, right? Do you understand that this is when Jesus is saying that he is the light of the world, right? Jesus is standing up in the midst of this and he is saying, he is claiming in the midst of this light that shines all over Jerusalem. On the last day, Jesus is the one that stands up and says, I am the light of the world. I am the, like, I'm not just the light here for Jerusalem, right? That, that would light up every courtyard in Jerusalem. Jesus claims his light over the whole wide world. Now, there's one other caveat here, because there's this great thing that's happening at the festival, um, the festival of the tabernacles that Jesus is, is playing into. And then there's a second thing that's happening too that I want to point out, where Jesus is, is really kind of, not only is he fulfilling this, this feast of tabernacles, but he's filling this, this deep prophecy from Isaiah. Okay, it takes a little bit of 
work, but if you look at your Bibles, right, if you go to 7.50.52, I think I put that wrong. Yeah, no, John 7.52, right? And then do you see in there it says the earliest manuscripts and many other ancient witnesses, they don't have John 8.53 through 8.11, right? This is the story of the adulterous woman. This was kind of at some point, this, this text was, was inserted in. It wasn't part of the original, original. Um, so 52, they say, are you from Galilee too? Look into it and you will find that a prophet does not come from Galilee, right? So if you were to kind of just suspend 8, 1 through 11, right? And commentators say, if you just suspend that and you just kind of read it maybe more in that original language, are you from Galilee? Prophets don't come from Galilee, that backwater, you know, podunk, nothing town. Then Jesus speaks right after that. And he says, and then he says, when Jesus spoke again to the people, he says, I am the light of the world, right? Whoever follows me will never walk in darkness, but will have the light of, of life. When you read in between the lines, again, oftentimes what Jesus does is he makes a comment or he says something, but he's actually referring to something else, right? Just like as Jesus is standing in the tabernacles and the temples and he's doing this, he's referring to this whole history of things. He's referring to this passage in Isaiah, right? So this is in Isaiah chapter nine, right? Isaiah is speaking again, he's speaking judgment, but hope as he often does, right? He's speaking judgment, but hope. And he says, nevertheless, that time of darkness and despair will not go on forever, right? The land of Zebulun and Naphtali will be humbled, but there will be a time in the future when Galilee of the Gentiles, which lies along the road that runs between the Jordan and the sea, will be filled with glory. Those people who walk in darkness will see a great light. For those who live in a land of deep darkness, a light will shine. So again, if you take this passage, right, and you kind of read it in its original text, and they're criticizing, they're mocking Jesus. Oh, Jesus, you Galilean, you know, you're, nothing's important there, right? Nothing exciting happens from Galilee. And Jesus is actually referring to this passage in Isaiah where Isaiah, one of the great prophets that they would quote and they would know, says that the future will come from this city in Galilee, that the light will shine. The light will come from Galilee. Now, we've spent a lot of time this morning, and I'm thinking about, I've been like really fascinated and really interested in this passage and seeing all the interplay that Jesus is doing. And I'm thinking like, okay, well, Okay, what does it matter to people? Like, what, what, what do we care about this? And I think I, this is what I came up with. I don't know if this works for anybody or if, if this is helpful. I am always in awe. Or maybe I was re-in awe. Or, or, just, or just motivated to think about the boldness and the confidence and the power that Jesus had. And it wasn't just like, it wasn't Jesus just, you know, being bold or confident or whatever. Because Jesus isn't just speaking on his own behalf. Again, if you go back to 8, um, to 8.16, Jesus says, I stand with the Father who sent me. Right? 
So it's not just Jesus kind of being up there and just, you know, making a real statement for himself. Jesus in this sentence, in this moment, standing as the light of the world, pulling together Isaiah, culminizing the feast of the tabernacles and standing with the father. Again, sometimes we have to read Jesus and study Jesus and allow Jesus just to kind of, just to kind of sit with us for a little bit and really, and really, really just, man, just give us a vision of a life that is beautiful and well-lived and worth following, confident, bold, powerful, just stunning, right? Um, Let me do, I think we'll do one more. I don't think we're going to make all three this morning. I want to talk about miracles and I want to talk about worship. So let's read this one in John 9. So on page 746. And why don't we read this first little part in in the round. So if maybe you would read a verse or two. And then uh, I'll finish up the last little bit in 35 through 41. So someone start us off here in 9-1. Saying this, he spit on the ground, made some mud with the saliva, and put it on the man's eyes. Go, he told him. Wash in the pool of Siloam. This word means sent. So the man went and washed and came home seeing. His neighbors and those who had formerly seen him begging asked, Isn't this the same man who used to sit and beg? Some claimed that he was. Others said, No, he only looks like him. But he himself insisted, I am the man. Tell them where your eyes open and He replied, The man they called Jesus made him some mud and put it on, on my eyes. He told me to go to Siloam and wash. So I went and washed, and then I could see. Where is this man? They asked him. I don't know, he said. So you have this healing, man born blind, right? And... Um, then the Pharisees actually are investigating this healing, right? So people are like, hey, how did this happen? What's going on? So 13, say through 34, you know, they're, they're kind of going back and forth with them. How do you know you're blind? How do you know it was this guy Jesus who did it? What about your sin? There's kind of this big investigation, right? He ends up getting thrown out um, of the synagogue, Sometimes you just need a quick break in a sermon. We just got to refocus. They end up throwing him out of the synagogue, right? They say, you're a liar. You're a sinner. You're steeped in sin. You're in Kahoot, right? So pick up in verse 35. Jesus heard that they had thrown him out. And when he found him, he said, do you believe in the son of man? Son of man was a title Jesus would often use for himself. 
The guy says, who is he, sir? Tell me so that I may believe in him. Jesus said, you have now seen him. In fact, he is the one speaking with you. And then verse 30, verse 38, really important um, right here. He says, Jesus says, um, then the man said, Lord, I believe. And then the second part, and worshiped him. For Jesus says, for judgment I have come into this world so that the blind will see and those who see will become blind. Some Pharisees who were with him heard him say this and asked, what are we blind to? And then Jesus said, if you were blind, you would not be guilty of sins, but you claim you can see. Since you claim you can see, your guilt remains, right? So Jesus heals this guy in, in chapter nine, right? Um, in verse Five is where he says, I am the light of the world. They investigate the healing. And then Jesus has this last little moment where the guy ends. And this, this point is really important. I think all throughout the Bible is that when you encounter a miracle in the Bible, most likely it doesn't just stop at cognitive belief, but worship, right? It doesn't just stop at cognitive belief, but worship. And this is, one of the primary issues in Christianity is in Christianity, especially in the West, and I think this has always been a problem, is we have a lot of quote-unquote believers in Jesus, right? A lot of people say, oh yeah, I believe in Jesus, or I believe in God, or I believe there's something out there. But we don't have enough people who are worshiping God, right? And I know worship often gets kind of all funneled into what Brian is going to do, right, in the next 10 minutes or so, where it's just like, hey, he's just, we're singing some songs together. To me, worship is an obsession. That's the best way for me to think about worship is an obsession. And, you know, some folks out there, I just got a couple, I got a couple fun things that people, obsess sounds a little bit like, like kind of like teenage girl with posters on her wall or, te- you know, whatever, back like, oh, they're obsessed, right? But, you know, people get obsessed with television programs, right? Celebrities. Maybe so, I was trying to find like a neutral political character this morning, you know, like political characters. Maybe, you know, innovators. I put that up for your husband, but he's not here today. But maybe you want to take a picture and just say, Eric was giving you love for the Raiders. In the bottom right, Malcolm Gladwell, like gurus. And again, obsession is like, no, that's just like kind of teenage girls and whatnot. Or, but we, we get really involved and passionate about certain things, right? And we give our time, our money, our effort, our energy. We invest. We, it, it, these things end up really, and you guys know this, and they end up consuming parts of our lives, right? So when I think about Jesus, again, looping this back, right? Jesus opens this guy's eyes. He heals his blindness. And the guy doesn't stop saying, oh, wow, Jesus, I believe. Yeah, okay, you're God and what? He begins to worship him. Now, when we think about what Jesus has done for us, right? And I mean, honestly, think about the darkness that you would be in right now. You'd be chasing a career. You'd be you'd be just kind of on a path to nowhere. You'd be frustrated and angry 
You'd have resentment and bitterness that's just kind of in your life. And Jesus comes into your life and he opens up your eyes and says, let me show you how to really live in this world, right? Let me show you what it's like to live. And our response isn't just like, okay, I believe in God. I believe in... Our response is worship. Our response is obsession, is passion, is to be fervent, is to be, is to all of our energy, our heart, our mind, and our soul go into Jesus, the one who has opened up our eyes, right? And again, Jesus comes and says, I am the light of the world, right? If you, without me, you will walk in darkness. And we are all here this morning because Jesus has opened up our eyes. I think that's about enough for this morning. Um, I had one more, but I, yeah, let's, let's call it there. And let me say a word of prayer and then we'll do just a few minutes of discussion. And uh, yeah, Lord, again, that you would open up our eyes. It's such, the, one of the major themes, darkness and light, until that day when our eyes are always opened because the light that shines from the throne of the living God fills our bodies, our hearts, our minds, and our souls. Lord, we hope for that. We wait for that. We trust in that. All these things in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Yeah, just a, a few questions for discussion. Um, maybe your favorite biblical example of light. We just had some kind of fun time brainstorming those as you think about that. If you were to close your eyes, again, this is probably using a little bit more of the right brain. Close your eyes imagining Jesus at the Feast of Tabernacles, claiming he is the light of the world. What, is, what does that look like? What do you see? Maybe, again, just kind of, if you want to explore that right brain side. Um, am I using that right? Creative side is the right brain side? Creative is the right side. Left is logic. Yeah. Okay. yeah. yeah. Whew. Don't want to stand up here and ruin the sermon right at the very end. But um, yeah, I mean, just, just maybe think about that. Jesus is standing up there in the, in the midst of lanterns and celebrating and innumerable music instruments. I was thinking like, were people even paying attention to Jesus? But I mean, obviously he was in this debate with the Pharisees, but um, yeah, so he's claiming, what do you see? What, what images will come to mind? Uh, who is someone that you're obsessed with? And again, I, I think obsessed is probably too strong of a word because no, I'm not obsessed, but that you're really maybe, you know, like there's, a, there's maybe a mountain biker that I would, probably like have a lot of passion towards or a cyclist or you know and what do you do or what do you invest in that passion like how do you do you do you binge watch the entire series when it comes out do you read all the books that that person's read again think about that maybe think about that in terms of Jesus um and I you know this is what's kind of getting into the last point if, if this kind of works you know, Jesus, again, is claiming that he is the light of the world. Everybody outside of Jesus is in darkness, right? Do you have, or why would you say we would have a negative reaction 
when accepting Jesus' reality that everyone else outside of him is in complete darkness. So take a minute or two for those, those questions, and then we'll, we'll wrap up from there.